The Data Engineering Show is brought to you by Firebolt. It's the cloud data warehouse for insanely fast analytics over terabytes of data with fewer resources. Hi, and, and welcome back, everyone, on the Data Engineering Show. Uh, today, we again have two amazing guests, uh, kind of Joe and Matt. Uh, you probably know them from the book Fundamentals of Data Engineering, uh, which, which is really well known. And we again have our awesome co-host, Robert, joining in today, because uh, I know you were super excited about getting to talk to Joe and Matt again. Uh, so yeah, welcome everyone to the show. Rob, take it away. <laughs> Straight to me, huh? Well, it's great to see you guys. Um, you again, Joe, and it's great to meet you for the first time, Matt. You know, really, we try and keep things fairly low-key in these and, uh, you know, try and stay out of trouble if we can, but that doesn't always happen. But I do have some questions, and I figured, you know, I've got you guys here, and you really do work the entire industry rather than a single product or a single content, or, you know, consulting firm, etc. So you've got a different visibility than many of the people that we get to talk to. The other thing I noticed is you guys both have a very long background in data analytics, but you decided to jump over the dark side with, you know, guys like me and get into data engineering and data architecture. Joe, do you want to go first? Do you want to take this one this time? I mean, I, I think we both jokingly call ourselves recovering data scientists. We could write code before. I mean, we kind of grew up around computers and all that fun stuff. But I, what we realized was, uh, with, especially with data science and analytics and so forth and the popularity of data, especially through the 2010s, um, you know, you'd see a lot of companies hiring data scientists and I think forgetting to build the foundation that would help data scientists succeed. And so that's, uh, I think, was a lot of our uh, raison d'etre, I suppose. Uh, uh, so we, we joined the dark side, right? We found data engineering was actually, um, I guess it wasn't really called that back then, but, you know, it's just out of necessity. You have to, you know, you could you could basically not do your job or you could figure out ways to, to make yourself successful. And I suppose that's at least how I... Uh, envisioned it. I don't know. What about you, Matt? Yeah, yeah. I think it was a combination of factors. So uh, when I was doing a lot of analytics and data science work a few years ago, we had Teradata and Hadoop both on-prem. And both of those systems at some point started becoming a bottleneck for me. And this sort of coincided with this era when a lot of data processes were moving to the cloud. And so I got to participate on big data POCs in both uh, AWS and GCP and see the possibilities of those technologies in terms of scalability. So now I didn't have to buy all the nodes that I needed to run a really big job where I could you know, dynamically scale up capacity to support more analytics instead of having just a static system that I pay for up front. And so that's kind of what pulled me over to the engineering side of seeing the possibilities of those tools and how those could support analytics and data science. And so... Like both Joe and I are, are familiar with on-prem systems and we do trainings around those as needed where companies have a need for those. But I think our real emphasis too is the possibilities of the cloud and scalability, et cetera, and how those really, when we say uh, we're recovering data scientists, it's not out of disdain for data science. It's rather out of the possibilities that data engineering can bring to machine learning, data science, and analytics. If it helps any, recently I got to to use the phrase recovering architect for for the first time in 20 years, I'm not the architect of anything. I'm not a, an integration architect. I'm not a solution architect. I'm not even a data architect anymore. So I'm recovering as well. I make, you know, touch base with you later on notes on how to get through this transition. But no, it's, it's recovering architect. Did it feel cathartic when you uh, started calling yourself that? Uh, it's new, man. I'm still trying to grow into the idea. So it's, you know, it's like buying a new car. It works kind of like the last car. It's just really, really different. We'll figure it out. The recovering title sort of has a new car smell to it, too, for a bit, I, and, uh, <laughs> and it wears off. Yeah, give it time. 
Okay, so I do have some of those tendencies. You got me there already. Maybe that's part of why I'm looking to walk away from that title. Speaking of, you know, you bring up the term curmudgeon, and this may touch a little bit on that. We've, we've been through some stuff in the data industry. You and I, we, you know, we're, we're of similar uh, vintage. We've seen some things. I'd like to think we're kind of coming off that whole big data thing, and we're, tra- you know, strategically shifting as an industry. Uh, so we're, you know, phrases are popping around things like we need to deliver value, for instance. We've seen this a lot lately. Now, I, I like to think I've been delivering value for a lot of years in different ways, different methods, because my job as a data architect is to get a, as close to the customer's experience as possible and truly try and influence, reach out from my little data pit to make that happen. Where do you guys kind of see this going in the upcoming year or two, five? I don't know. Matt, you're writing a book on data value. You should, you should speak on this. Yeah, I, I like what you say about getting really close to the customer. I think in terms of delivering value, that's one of the main channels is like really connecting with the customer. And I think that's where we've seen a lot of really exciting work in data recently. It's also getting c- close to supply chain. It's getting close to the sea levels. It's getting close to all the goals of your business, right? And actually try and deliver value in those areas. I think where we saw data science big data engineering, data engineering go astray over time is the kind of gee whiz aspect of technology and new domains, right? So data science craze a few years ago, everyone wanted to be a data scientist. Companies wanted to hire data scientists, but that customer focus was often lacking. So it's just like, oh, what cool thing can I do with Kaggle data? Now can I do that with my data? But wait, what am I actually trying to do for the business or what am I trying to do for the customer? That often got left out of the conversation. So I hope that now as the market is tightening, you know, as the job market is a bit more tight in the tech industry, we're actually thinking about those questions, both for data science and data engineering and trying to do things that the business actually needs. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, Joe? I don't know. I'm, I'm tired of the uh, the word value, right? And sorry that you're writing a whole book on this. Uh, but I was talking to, I think, Malcolm Hawker yesterday, and we were, uh, he asked me about business value. And I said, if I keep hearing this or reading this on LinkedIn, I'm probably going to jump off a bridge pretty soon. It's just, we've been talking about the same stuff for decades now, right, Rob? And it's like, it's it's the same. I mean, I, I feel like I'm just like an old folks home where you just, they just keep talking about the same old war stories over and over again. And it's, uh, yeah, and I, I just hope that we can move past this. I mean, my dream actually is that we just stop talking about data, right? And that's, I think, when you, when you finally delivered value is when you don't have to acknowledge it. Because you're just delivering it. You know, you don't have to like rant about it. Like, hey, I'm delivering value. Because it's like, if you have to scream that far, uh, you know, scream that loud from the rooftops. And, you know, I think that there's an inverse correlation to the amount of data or um, value that you're probably delivering, in my opinion. I mean, you don't see your, your, uh, your accountant saying, oh, I deliver value. Right. They just do books and then your books are done. That's pretty easy. And I, I just hope, you know, over the next few years, I just hope that, you know, data becomes a lot more silent. Right. And I wrote about this in, in one of my uh, blog posts where I, I, th- I said it's, um, you know, stop using the, the word data uh, when you're talking to the business. I think that's, if we can reach that goal, uh, you know, reach that, uh, that ideal where data sort of, um, it just happens and we're just delivering whatever value we say we're delivering, then I think that's a win. If that happens in the next five years, super duper. Now, I do feel um, we are at sort of an interesting moment as an industry, right? There's a lot of attention being paid to things like AI now. You know, AI sort of jumped the shark. If we're ever going to get anything right in this industry, now's the time to do it. We don't have this opportunity that often where things like data quality, governance, management, all these enterprise-y things are suddenly like, you know, you need to get these things right for AI to work. And my concern is if we can't get this right, 
when are we going to get it right? Yeah, and that's the question, right? It, can we do something different this time? Or are we just going to repeat history again and again as we uh, have with every new data fad? I mean, I was joking with uh, somebody. I think it was Malcolm's post, too. He posted something about like large language models and uh, data governance. And at this point, I'm kind of like, you know, whatever Hail Mary you need to do to, to make data governance work, go for it. Because I think at this point, like, <laughs> we keep trying to do the same stuff over and over again. And, and uh, you know, it's a definition of insanity, really. The success rate on these kinds of projects is... It's not that great. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can we can finally figure things out, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. You raise an interesting issue there because when I jumped into the data warehouse world way back in the day, the success rate on data warehouse projects was dismal, 10, 15% tops. It just didn't happen. I'm looking at the world today and you do bring up something interesting, Joe, is are we that much better today? Well, 10, 15%, so that's 85 90% failure rate, right? Yeah. According to whatever criteria. And those are the stats that Gardner always throws out and all the other pundits. Uh, you know, so Well, that's not hopeful. <laughs> you just need to move the goalpost for what success looks like. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> you're suddenly just killing it. So I don't know. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, walk me through this though, Robert. I mean, back in the day when you when you uh, got into the industry, uh, you know, whenever that was, data warehousing, what were some of the contributing factors to success and failure back then? I can't speak for the entire industry because I was so busy in my own project that that's all I could see. I put blinders on because it was such a pain. You know, we did really well. It was just a really big project. I got through in because I had somewhat of a background in process management. And that married really well with the business that we were we were managing. So I could take that process management background, marry it with the wonderful things I learned from Bill Inman and company through reading and start to build out structured, strong data warehouses that met the business's needs. So when I started, really what I was looking at was the outcomes. You know, everybody talks about all kinds of things like models and structures and streaming and whatnot, and the customer doesn't care. All the customer cares about is that they get what they want on time with high quality and that we can do it repeatedly. That's where I set my sights with that project is, okay, I'm going to map out everything that touches a customer in this company. And that's all sorts of things, whether that's customer service calls or product delivery or any of these things. So I map out these processes and then I apply those same four basic metrics to it. Did it happen on time? What's the backlog? What's the volume? What's the rate? It's a very boring mathematic process. but since it was so business process oriented rather than technology oriented, it gave me a lot of latitude within the warehouse itself to just things like software and hardware. Nobody cares. We just need to hit these, you know, these things. So that was the goal way back then. And it continued to be that way, at least in my world for no, at least another decade. Things went a little silly for a while. I like to think we're slowly trying to scratch that back. Because if I can deliver on those things, then the customer is happy. The business has no choice but to succeed. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. They'll improve, the company will improve performance 3% per month forever. But if I can get them on that path, I've got at least a path to success. Does that answer your question, Joe? Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote a blog post uh, a couple of weeks ago, too, about, you know, we have no shortage of great tools at this at this point in time. I think we sort of have... Too many great tools, actually. It's almost a paradox, right? But, but even amidst this um, embarrassment of riches, as Matt's always fond of saying, uh, why is it that we still, you know, 
we're, we're still troubled. I, so I wrote that, you know, in a lot of cases, I feel like from, from a practitioner standpoint, I really feel like we, we um, do better using the tools we have. This comes through like upskilling, learning best practices and so forth. I feel like that's largely ignored. You know, we focus too much, you know, and learning to work with the, uh, quote, the business and all this stuff. I think if we can start focusing on that, I, I think that this is actually one of the biggest issues in the industry right now is really the, the gap um, between the, the capability that we have with the tools and, and our uh, ability to properly execute on using these tools. Yeah, the tools are almost too easy, right? And that's part of the problem. They've almost become toys rather than professional tools that we use toward achieving a goal. What are we trying to do with these tools? Sometimes we don't have a good answer to that question. It's just like Snowflake is cool or EMR is cool or whatever happens. Firebolt is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, well, Firebolt is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes we don't answer the question of like what we're actually trying to accomplish. And like you said, Joe, fundamentals, like data fundamentals, like quality, for example, and how do we ingest data properly? What are what do data contracts look like? Those are often missing. <laughs> that is a subject that that I've been thinking about and I've been studying on, and I haven't quite wrapped my head around where exactly they came from. But data contracts, you know, again, I'm from a previous generation. Quality to me is is guaranteed by correct schema. That's you know, those were the rules from 1990. Obviously, that's a little more challenging today, especially when we have these massive cloud data warehouses and constraining a thing on one node when it's happening on another node in this giant warehouse is a mathematics trick that, well, I'll leave for Benjamin in another day. It's hard. So these things aren't available. Um, so I can see how an idea like data contracts would come in. I, I just haven't quite wrapped my head around it. Any help? I mean, software engineers have been doing this forever, though, right? With schema registries and stuff. And, you know, and I think that that's, I think if you want to know where data is going, like with contracts and whatever else, just look at where software engineering has been for the past 10, 20 years and just, uh, <laughs> just adopt those practices there. It's, you know, so I think it was Andrew Jones. I think he, he claims he was the first, uh, person to come up with the idea of data contracts or the, the term. Um, so we'll trace it back to him. He's published a new book on PACT, which I still need to read. I think we, Actually, we were editing it for reviewing it for a bit there, Matt, but uh, maybe you did more of it. A really cool guy. And then obviously, Chad Sanderson, you know, has just sort of taken the uh, idea of data contracts. I think he really popularized it. Um, you know, he's built a big uh, community around that whole idea and data quality. So, but it was interesting, you know, it, one of my uh, software engineering friends, uh, you know, she was at a, a conference uh, listening to talk on data contracts and she, she was laughing the entire time. She's like, this is sad. Like, we've been doing like, what's What's new about this? We've been doing this stuff for forever like this is nothing this is nothing new and so i think she was just kind of shocked at how far behind uh the data world really is compared to software engineering so i thought that that was really interesting and maybe this is another artifact of a previous subject we were discussing if i'm not reaching out to the customer if i don't live in the customer's world how am i going to understand what some dev team is doing with some application i mean the last blog post i had last week you know it's uh, the dev and data divide you know and it's and I have this picture that I like to show. It's um, dev on the left, data on the right, and it's um, crap flows downhill, to, to put it um, more euphemistically. But that's kind of how it is. It's a one-way street typically right now, right? Data's on the receiving end of a lot of stuff. And hopefully that changes, you know, especially as we start developing more, uh, quote, data products and you know, the feedback loop goes back to the dev side now. To me, it's an artificial divide. It's a divide that had to happen back in the day because it was typically uh, data was an IT function. But that's disappearing as data becomes more front and center for everything. So I think that's, that's what's going to change if you kind of rewind your first question of where things are going to go over the next few years. I think that's definitely one of them. I, it has to. This, this artificial divide between dev and data, it's really crippling. I agree, Joe. And honestly, for me, it was quite shocking because I spent way too many years at a, at a single organization 
well, later than the previous warehouse I spoke of, where where I was the data guy for both sides. So, you know, my, I, I control the entire BI environment and I control the entire operational environment. So I, I live with the development staff all day. This is what we do. So there couldn't be a divide. So I had to play both sides of that game. And when I came out of that environment, out into the real world, it was honestly quite shocking. I hadn't seen this before. I didn't imagine it existed. And I got a lot of lessons in a hurry. <laughs> But I do think, yes, we need to work more toward that homogenous type environment where data people are embedded everywhere. They don't have to have a sign on their head that says I'm the data person. But at least if we've got data people everywhere, then we've got a chance. Yeah, just moving toward the assumption that a lot of data is going to be customer facing rather than just appearing in reports and quite often, frankly, stale reports traditionally where you get a report after 24 hours or after 48 hours when maybe there are actions you could have taken and it's too late to take those actions now. I think the the idea that your data can show up directly in an application, that the customer can get an idea of what's going on with their account or other places, and that's all tied into analytics, it has really taken off in Silicon Valley in the last 20 years, but we're still kind of behind in certain areas. No, I mean, the, the world's moved beyond reports at this point, you know, BI reports and stuff. It's just like, if we're still struggling with that, I, I don't know, I'll go do something else with my time, go... uh become a veterinarian or something it's more fun but um but no i mean that's kind of where we are i mean we're still talking about dashboards and stuff i'm like seriously like this is like so it's interesting you know but, but you know so we can talk about solutions though right i mean I'm, I'm good at being a curmudgeon at this point and cranky and you know uh irritated and stuff and uh, i don't know it's uh but you know solutions are interesting and um you know i, I think that's where the conversation needs to go because it's it, again it's just the same old tropes you see on linkedin all the time especially where it's like you know deliver business value and all this stuff and you need to have a data strategy in place and all the all this stuff and i'm like dude like we've been talking about this shit for for, for ages like let's uh let's yeah and the other half focus. is you know consider your audience this kid just came out of college it's his first year in a data role and you're gonna tell him he needs to deliver value how's he gonna do that and not that this data value matter. I know again, I know you're working on a book and stuff, but it's one of these things where I hope you can nail the the topic too in, in a way that you know pushes the industry forward. The, the stuff I've seen so far, it's like it's good, but it's like yeah, it's it's a tricky subject to, to tackle, right? It is, and I, I've seen way too much vague consultant speak uh, that I want to avoid. I mean, I, I think there are. I think if you've worked in data, you've seen very concrete ways of serving customer needs, for example. And that's what we need to talk more about. We need to talk about things that are frustrating in the customer experience and how people working in data can help with other IT teams to improve those experiences. That's what we're talking about. When we're talking about business value, like things that make the customer happier, that make the business happier. That's value very concretely. And it's the problem is that on the one hand, it's very concrete for data people. On the other hand, it can be a little bit vague from the accounting side, right? Like what is the value of a customer who is happier because they can see what's going on with their account very quickly. It's a little hard to measure, but if we have a strong customer service focus, then then there's definite value attached to that. One thing I'm curious about in general, right, kind of like coming coming out of this is we're saying, hey, our tools got much better, right? But we still have many of the same problems we used to have. We still keep cycling around to same kind of topics. And both you, Joe, and Matt, kind of right, you're teaching a lot, kind of you're doing thought leadership, kind of you're writing blogs, you kind of wrote that super well-known book, you're affiliated with the University of Utah, you're consulting, kind of like, arguably you could say, okay, if we have all of those amazing tools now and we're still cycling around the same uh, kind of types of problems, right, maybe we're just not teaching it well enough. So what does that mean for your approach to 
kind of delivering these things to a professional students, those types of things. We failed. <laughs> Kid comes out swinging. It's <laughs> a good question. I mean, I think part of the problem, and this is not to, to trash vendors too much. I think vendors build fantastic Horrible products. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but but I mean, if, if I'm in sales for a vendor, I'm, I'm not necessarily focused on how how I use the tool. I just want to get the tool out there and get people using it, right? And that's where there is more need for people on kind of the meta level to come in and say, all right, you've decided on X, Y, and Z tools. How can we actually use these to help your company? You know, and do, do that training all along. I mean, I, I think uh, Joe and I have complained a lot about the lack of training for undergraduates and data specifically. And part of that training as we build it out needs to be, obviously, they need to learn data fundamentals like data modeling, FinOps, cost management. But but also what it's like to work inside a business and the kinds of things that businesses care about and how they can communicate better. I mean, communications are notoriously difficult to teach, right? Because how do you teach someone out of a textbook how to communicate with someone? But we need to keep thinking about these problems and figuring, figure out how to give students practical, concrete experience with communicating with businesses and stakeholders. So how do you do that? Because like, that was also a very abstract answer. Fair, fair. I mean, I think from our perspective, um, a lot of this comes down to building better collaboration between undergrad and master's programs and businesses. Shockingly often, we see that you've sort of got this MBA world that operates almost in a vacuum separate from the business world. And that's that's not ideal, right? You well, the want... academic world operates separate yeah. from the business world, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some cases, that's good. In a lot of cases, I think it's um, it's pretty bad. It does a disservice to, to students. So that's one thing I'd like to see change, right? So you talk about concrete stuff. Uh, I would also like to see more apprenticeship type programs. I think that the notion of uh, a university being a necessity, I think, is absolutely... Um, the wrong way to go. Um, so I think more people could be trained on this uh, from practical things like apprenticeships. You know, I'm, I'm uh, creating a new MOOC um, class right now, of course, uh, for a really big MOOC. Um, one of the things I'm doing is uh, it's a simulator. It's your first day on the job as a data engineer. You get to go do business requirement gathering. You get to go find out what stakeholders want. And part of it is identifying, okay, so you're given this list of requirements. What are people actually asking for? So I think that's the other talk. We, we, we spend too much time uh, teaching tools and not enough time teaching the techniques. So I think those are concrete ways that we could address it because uh, it's easy to do like, the, you know, PySpark tutorials and stuff, I think. But that's the wrong way to teach data. I think the way we teach it is absolutely, uh, it's backwards, right? Know the techniques and then learn the tools. That's why we wrote the book the way we did. It's, it's um, technology agnostic, for example, right? And um, pretty much every company in the universe is using it for their data teams right now. Almost every university that we you know, it's increasingly uh, being used as a, default textbook for data engineering. So to me, that, that's that's part of the, the process, right? But it's not going to be an overnight thing. But I think the way we approached our book is similar to how Martin Kleppman approached his book. It's agnostic. It stands the test of time. And that's kind of where we need to get to. We are making an effort. It's, it is slow. Especially universities are slow. They're so slow. And that's part of the problem with them. And, you know, I've experienced this myself and I've had the, the awesome opportunity to work with some great kids that came straight out of college. They were bright and worked with me for a couple of years. And that builds that mentorship type relationship. And then of course I achieve my goal. They get all full of themselves and they quit on me and go somewhere else, which is absolutely awesome. This is the best day in, in anyone's life as a data monkey. When you send another one off to open his own shop, the problem Benjamin, is when are you quitting? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's not on He's my team right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Sorry. <laughs> so, no, those days do happen. The problem that we run into is how do you do that at scale? And that I haven't figured out yet. It's an interesting one. Mentorship is, that's the other key component of it, I think, is, is mentorship. You know, that, that's, it's a huge, huge thing. So I think, all, yeah, all the above, really. How do you scale it, though? I don't know. Because mentorship is inherently kind of a one-to-one type thing. So it's like, it, it, yeah. You know, and a lot of people don't want to be mentors, for example. <laughs> yeah, it's work. <laughs> so there's that. It's an interesting one, though, but it, it is something that Matt and I think a lot about. I mean, you know, we're both educators. And I think, um, you know, we did our small contribution to the universe with our book and we're writing new books. But, you know, books, books will only take you so far, right? This is very much a practice-oriented field. Right. You do have to be out in the pits doing the job. And that's hard to explain. It's, it's, there's a million things you'll get hit with on any given day as a data guy that are not in the books anywhere. And, you know, the other thing that I'm really, you know, you've heard me or you've seen me write it, Joe. Data is not a technical game. It's a social club. It really is. I, I need to know everything that's going on in my team, in other teams, I need to keep that socialization going or I can't achieve the technical solutions. And that I don't think is coming out of college. It'll be interesting. But, you know, we, we were talking yesterday uh, with Holland Nelson about this. It was a, the rare opportunity. Uh, we we're doing a podcast with her and rare opportunity of uh, three math nerds, um, three professors, uh, three O'Reilly authors in one podcast. So we were talking about the, you know, the, the, the idea of tenure, really. And it's a double edged sword for that because like tenured professors you know, on one hand, it's it's great. It allows you the um, academic freedom and the psychological safety to pursue your work. On the other hand, I think it also provides incentives not to do things in the student's interest. I've seen this happen where some professors uh, in data programs especially won't update their stuff because it's, you know, too much work. Or maybe they have other things going on. So these students are learning outdated stuff like this, you know, Hadoop and all this other crap. I'm just like, why are you teaching this? This is nothing to do with reality at this point. But, you know, that's 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 what it is. Yeah. And it's tough to stay current. And, you know, it's tough to find people from from business who want to teach as well. I mean, they, if you have a job in data, you're very busy and you're probably well compensated for your time. And so... Teaching is almost a charity exercise, maybe isn't. But especially so adjuncting. Funny. Dear yeah, God, yeah. That's, I mean, oh. it's like the worst job in the universe. <laughs> you know about this, it's, it's, yeah. it's the best and worst job. You've done it before? Uh, I, I have not. I, okay. It, yeah. Um, though I have been involved in a number of, of uh, K-12 tech institutions, and it's the same game. Yeah. I will say the best talk I gave this year, though, is at my uh, sixth grade, um, or my, my kids' sixth grade class. We talked about AI. And that was really fun. So I think like, you know, teaching younger kids is almost easier than teaching college in some ways because uh, they're just more fun to talk to for one. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, but it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I, I think there's a lot of anti patterns established at this point, though, and how you could probably improve on with, with respect to teaching. But to me, this is the crux in the industry right now. Like, again, we have all the tools in the universe. That's not the consideration at this point. You can solve any problem you want to, basically, but it's like you don't even know what problem to solve because you don't know how to think through problem solving. It's a fundamentally different thing. And I, I do believe that part of that is just the youth of our industry. Now, sure, we've been collecting data on stone tablets since Mesopotamia, but not like this. This is a new industry. It's not like I'm dealing with architecture or finance or, or manufacturing where they've got ideas on how to do their job. We're still working out the kinks on this thing. So, you know, I think some of that is to be expected. Well, yeah, I talked to Bill Inman too. You know, and he, I always ask him, like, geez, Bill, what was it like back in the day? Um, and he's like, oh, it's, we're, we're a very immature industry. I, 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 remember, I remember calling him and kind of just 
angst one day. And I was just like, why? I'm kind of tired of this industry, Bill. You know, like, why, why is it that we keep repeating ourselves over and over? He's like, well, Joe, we're very immature as an industry. We haven't been around that long. I think intrinsically, we as, as data professionals have extremely short memories. Because if we could remember anything, we wouldn't run systems to memorize stuff for us. <laughs> uh, maybe it's the same thing about uh, software engineers basically being working very hard to be very lazy or what they say about mathematicians, yeah. right? It's like you do all yeah. this work to write code so you don't have to do the work day to day. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, you know, I mean, talk to people like Bill, though, who, who's been around. I mean, he, I, in my opinion, he is the industry. He kind of helped, you know, he's the godfather of the data industry. And so but he'd been programming since 1960, I think. So that's, that's a long time. That's basically stone tablets at that point. Or punch cards, which are basically <laughs> the same thing. So, so he convinced me to stick around. <laughs> so I was, I was really going to leave. I was like, I'm tired of this. This is just the dumbest industry I've ever seen. Who knows? I still might, but it's just, you know, I, I think it depends. And like, if, if we can like make tangible efforts to, to move the industry forward, you know, I think that's a good thing. But if we're still here talking about the same crap in like five years, like I'm going to go find something else to do. I don't have time for this. Like, you know what I'm saying? I actually did try and exit the data warehouse space after my second data warehouse. I got a new job. They had a whole <laughs> lot of, bad, huh? <laughs> they had a whole lot of operational database issues. I figured I could go work on that for a while. So when they, when they hired me, one of my contingencies was I'm not touching a data warehouse as long as I'm here. And uh, they agreed. And then two years later, I rebuilt the data warehouse. So, and were you coerced to, or are you just like, no, I've got to fix this no, mess? I, I, I can't deal with this chaos anymore. I have to fix this. <laughs> so it's your own damn fault, basically. Yeah, okay. it was pretty That's much pretty it. Funny, yeah, I tried to quit. I couldn't get out. So here I am. So it's like um, smoking, essentially. <laughs> it's yeah. It's just, can't finish. Yeah, so yeah, we, of times. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we've talked about a lot of, you know, somewhat curmudgeonly topics and what was me in the industry. But the upside here is we're all still here and we're all still fighting. I'm not sure why, but here we are. I do want to kind of move to some lighter subjects, if you don't mind. I know that's yeah, fine. <laughs> Joe and Matt, you guys are everywhere lately. What's coming up next? Um, let's see. I have a couple of things upcoming over the next couple of months. So I'll be on a couple of panels at Big Data London in September. And then there's a conference in Budapest at the beginning of October called CrunchConf. And so I'll be speaking there as well. So I can, if you guys want to put that in the show notes, I can put a couple of links out there. It'll be at my barbecue on Friday. And so. I'll be at your barbecue on Friday as well. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that's like the highlight of the, <laughs> yeah. the year. Yeah, and then because you're writing a book too, right? So that's uh, yeah, ongoing. Just... But um, yeah, for me, what I'm starting a world tour this Saturday, actually. So I'm off to Australia, and then um, I do the DBT and Joe Reese Roadshow too. So the mm -hmm. uh, DBT and I have a, kind of a traveling circus it goes to different cities. Uh, actually, would we'll be in your neck of the woods in Seattle uh, in uh, September. Well, then I'll have to stop by. I have no choice, right? Yeah, I could be unsociable. I mean, that's in my nature, right? Everybody knows I'm shy. You'll just send your kid. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> his kid keeps stealing his uh, Fundamentals of Data Engineering book. So oh, was, no, no, prank. it wasn't just him. The, so there is a story here. I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you did, All Joe. Right. Here we are. It's a funny before, story. Before we ever talked to each other, I ordered a copy of the book. And then uh, my sister-in-law and nephew came to hang out for a week over Christmas. They leave. I go looking for the book. It's gone. <laughs> so, and then, um, you know, a month later, they come back to visit. Book reappears. 
for a day and then it's gone because the son now stole it. And I finally, I mentioned this to Joe and he was so kind. He sent me an autographed copy and gave the kids instructions not to steal it. It says so right here. <laughs> so I finally got through the book the hard way. That's awesome. That made my day though. And it made my day too, that your kid, I think was in, interested in data engineering too. Like that was one of the coolest things I'd heard. I can't explain it. I, you know, he's seen me go through an entire career of pain and misery, and then he's decided he wants to do the same. I don't suggest it, you know, uh, but what am I going to do? He's he's soon an adult. I can't stop him. So it's like that old eighties uh, anti uh, you know drug ad. The uh, parents oh, who use drugs have to oh, see yeah. drugs. Yeah, um, yeah. I learned it from <laughs> so, you, Dad. I learned it yeah. from you. Um, uh, that and, was you my know, childhood. He's he's. <laughs> There's some there's some really attractive things about this industry, so I'm not going to tell him no, but I, I am going to be there, you know, the day when he falls into the industry trap, the consulting trap, and tell him I told you so. That's a guarantee. So he's off to school here in a couple of weeks. He goes off to be on his own in a computer science program, and we'll deal with the rest later. That's cool. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so I think... Uh, you know, the book is impacted kids. It's it's awesome. Um, other stuff I'm working on. I got a um, course for O'Reilly coming out. It's a mini course. It's just basically the greatest hits of the book. It's like a not that long of a course. It's um, and then uh, I can't announce it yet, but it, it'll be a big announcement in November for something I'm working on. Uh, then I got a, I got a new book too um, on data modeling that it should have been done by now, but I think a few things. Uh, one courses, two speaking, and then three just um. Large language models and chat GPT kind of threw me for a loop with respect to data modeling. So I was like, okay, I don't know what this does. Does it do anything? Is it a nothing burger? But, I, you know, it'd be, it'd be kind of weird to like write a book and not acknowledge that. But so you have to really think through the consequences. I, I, so I spent the last, um, I, I think I was, I'm finally coming to a resolution on it, but it was one of these um, events that I think it was too big to ignore. So even I started playing with chat GPT and data modeling because, you know, I've written on this before. I'm a big nerd when it comes to business rules. Business rules drive data models. I write them almost compilable, kind of like Chris Date taught us back in the day. What I've found over the years, though, is that people write them poorly, so they're not exact. And what I found with LLMs is I can take my, my business rules, feed them to the LLM and say, gen me a schema, and I can see immediately where I screwed up on my business rules. And then I can go back, tune up my business rules. And once I've got that, I can support a, a strong data dictionary, master data management, all that fun stuff. But the reality is ChatGPT is an idiot. And if I can convince an idiot to get it right, then I got my business rules right. So that's my little foray into that world. Now, but now, you know, spending the week nerding out on a vector databases too, I think that's a really fascinating technology. Because I think, again, with data modeling, I feel it's one of these topics where you mentioned Chris Date and, you know, uh, relational model and stuff. And, you know, as an industry, we're still talking about things like, you know, relational models and Kimball, all this stuff. And I'm like, why are, you know, people are arguing about star schemas. And it's like, they came out in like the 90s. Like, let's move on. Use it or not use it. I don't really care at this point. Use one big table. I don't really care. Um, but what's happened in the meantime, right? You got streaming, NoSQL, machine learning, all these new things. And, you know, the, the modeling practices around that still need to congeal. And so that's... I, for the life of me, I've not figured out how to, how to pull off integration and time variance with a streaming source. This this seems like a Doctor Who moment. You're going to have to fold time. Walk the audience through what you're thinking, because I, 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 you and I have talked about this, I think, but, I, you know, it's an interesting topic. It's just a lot of workload to pull that off. Uh, you know, integration itself, any consulting firms run from integration projects for good reason. They're hard. They're just hard. And they're work. 
you can't buy a product to make this happen. So if I've got like a salesperson table in, you know, a, in one application, I've got an employee table in another application. And really this individual in both applications is the same individual in a subject matter oriented world. I need to put him together before I can make sense of all the data that applies to him. Right. Now, try this in a streaming environment. I dare you. It's hard enough in a batch environment because if there's an interference, at least in a batch environment, I've got an hour to fix this before the next batch comes through. In a streaming environment, I'm lost. And then you start thinking about things like time variance, where we're looking at temporalities of that employee. I want to see what that employee's state was over time and quickly grab the, the the activity data over time for that employee. So he was in Montana, now he's in Wyoming. Did his sales numbers change? This is a tough question to start with because now we've got all this temporality to pull together. Okay, so now I've got to integrate the employee, pull all the temporality off, and do that while that Kafka queue is busy chewing my butt? I don't know how to do this yet. It's a problem I think the industry will have to solve, uh, probably not today. Your thoughts on this, Matt? We were talking to uh, uh, the guys from Estuary yesterday about streaming a kind of a deep dive. Yeah, yeah, they they had an interesting idea about this. So you might check out our Monday morning data chat from yesterday. Actually, yeah. So for the audience listening after the fact, that was uh, August fourteenth episode with Estuary, and the idea there was to you keep um, all the incoming data in sort of a raw JSON schema, and then when you have problems with your schema, for example you actually pause the kind of more refined side of your data. So you have an incoming pipeline, you're ingesting, collecting, you have a transformation pipeline, you basically pause the transformation p- pipeline and say, hey, what's what's going on here? You set off an alarm, you have engineers check the schema change and say, okay, here's what happened. They can make a schema change and then replay from the point where the failure happened. Ideally, it happens within like a day or something like this. And so that way, as schema and data are changing, you do kind of have pauses on the outside, on the output side. The real-time side, you want to focus more on the raw data, basically. But you're able to go back in time using replay capabilities to fix issues as they arise fairly quickly. And the idea is to make this as agile as possible so you don't accumulate several problems before you fix them. You're, you're very operational with your fixes. So really, too, I mean, it, it, you know, if you talk about a bounded and unbounded time as well, right? I mean, that, that should solve a temporality problem. Um, if, you're just, if you're keeping a, an append-only log, for example, right? It's just... Um, and inherently it should be there unless you have late arriving data, in which case, you know, you just said need to know like when did the event happen and when did I get it, right? So by temporal, yeah. um, tri-temporal would be like, you know, what, what did I do with it? But that's a different subject. But yeah, it's in theory, it should be easier with, with uh, streaming, but, you know, in practice, um, I don't know. We'll see. That's, that's not where I, I'm not seeing it as easier yet. I'm sure, you know, if we mature a little bit again as an industry, we'll figure it out. But right It'll now, have to happen though. It has yeah, to happen. It absolutely does. I mean, Matt and I predicted this in, in our book. The, uh, we call it the live data stack. And it's really the feedback loop between applications and events and um, analytics and data and machine learning. That feedback loop shrinks. Actually, yesterday we were talking about how this might actually bridge the uh, dev and data divide too. Because if you can shorten the time uh, between working with devs, uh, the feedback loop is there, in which case you, do, you, ha- you have to collaborate. I mean, it's, a, it's a forcing function. So Exactly. And one of the things that may help there is isolation of some of these ideas. Um, you know, historically, we, we had operational data stores as part of our BI environment where we could grab operational data from operational applications, bring it into that operational data store to co-locate it and sometimes apply temporality there. But we wouldn't do integration in that place. 
And that can really accelerate that communication between dev and the BI space because this becomes our DMZ. What you guys do over there, you do over there. What we do over here, we do over here. We're going to discuss what's going on in this operational data store as a negotiation. And that helped a lot. The problem is making that jump from an operational data store to a real data warehouse. That's hard to do in streaming. Uh, I don't know quite how to do that yet. I'm working on it. I think uh, Druid does a pretty good job at this, but it, it kind of changes, I think, the nature of what you know we might consider data warehousing as well. It's still analytics, but it, maybe it doesn't. You know, in some ways, it fits Bill's original definition. In other ways, it, you're probably going to have to morph it a bit too, uh, just because out of necessity. Or break it out into smaller structures that, like I said, you know, make more sense or leverage the physical stuff underneath. But I think there's opportunity there as opposed to our previous conversations where we were all grumpy. I think <laughs> there's we think definitely we can actually make progress here. Yeah. Well, that, that was kind of random. It's great. <laughs> I like random conversations. <laughs> but no, it's, 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 it's fun. Um, yeah, that's, that's all of Matt's, Matt and I's conversations are just, uh, uh, super random, but, uh, happens. I don't know. When we get on podcasts, for example, right. We don't ever have scripts. Right. Yeah, and I know. Yeah. And if people want scripts, I usually yeah. I usually tell them I don't want a script. Like, uh, yeah. do not have a script because uh, it's a uh, no. We've had this discussion, Joe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but this is We're, what you get. You, you get yeah. you get kind of a meandering, uh, you know, um, you know, crank cranky guy fest here, and um, you know, just except for Benjamin, he's a. Uh, Smiles too much. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I mean, uh, maybe in 10, 20 years, I'll, I'll smile less. <laughs> yeah, turn that frown upside down. Um, more, be more bitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just give it time. Perfect. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's an awesome conclusion to the episode. Just be more bitter, <laughs> <laughs> Joe. Matt, I'll, I'll work on that. Uh, thank you so much for joining today. Uh, yeah, it was great having you on the show. Uh, see you around. I feel like you're being kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> The Data Engineering Show is brought to you by Firebolt. It's the cloud data warehouse for insanely fast analytics over terabytes of data with fewer resources. 